Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 247. 47. So for, I think, episode 255, I'm going up to Colorado to hang out with Stephen. Episode 256 is Christmas week. So it's the week right before Christmas. Ooh, that's going to be interesting. So you actually looked at it then. I actually just did like a minute ago because <laughs> I'm like, wait, when does this actually happen? So, so. it's the week before Christmas. Uh, yeah. Let me see here. That's December uh, the 17th. No, sorry. December the 15th. So I have to figure out if it's going to work or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We got to work something out here. Yeah. But the 8-bit episode, that's coming up. Yeah, the 8-bit episode. And then we'll have to wait quite a while for the 16-bit episode <laughs> oh good lord <laughs> i don't think there is a uh electrical engineering podcast that has that many episodes yet i think the universe ends before that happens right i don't know would it <laughs> it's not no we got how many more episodes till the heat death of the universe uh it's more than 16 bits worth of episodes that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> okay so Today I want to talk about um, PCB stack up, but not like all encompassing. This is just kind of a question that came up in our engineering group at, at Macrofab. Mm. And it's kind of like one of these, um, it's, it's something I want to ask you as well, uh, mainly because you also do contract manufacturing for printed circuit boards. And so my question is, what do you do when a customer brings you a design and doesn't have a stack up. So first of all, what a PCB stack up is, is basically all the thicknesses and all the layers of what makes up a PCB. So you have solder mask, you have copper, you have uh, etching, which is like, you know, enig, what are your service finishes? You also have the pre-peg. Yeah, the pre-peg and core, which is the material that you're, the fiberglass material. Um, most time it's called FR4. And there's different ratings of FR4s. There's also like Rogers and a bunch of other stuff that's mainly used for uh, higher frequencies and that kind of stuff. But so if a customer does not have a stack up, what do you do? Okay, so I, I think one of the main differences between my contract manufacturing and your contract manufacturing is that uh, mine is very specific. We We manufacture one style of uh electronics basically yeah uh so we we actually very rarely get questions about the um about the actual stack up uh we've i can think of two customers off the top of my head who define those and those are pretty much the only two customers who've provided fab drawings that show the stack up and the stack up that they provided are just standard stack ups. Yeah, they're standard stack ups. So, so the it is so in the in the synthesizer world and even the guitar world, it's uh, it's way 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 behind in terms of going to high speed and I guess high technology and and basic boards that require uh, impedance control and things like that because most of our circuitry is is uh, in reference to audio frequencies. Unless somebody is doing some DSP stuff, which is which is a bit faster, but even that is not as intense. So that being said, um, for the most part, we our customers just have an assumption that the PCB that they're getting is a standard stack up, and we just go with that unless they 
requires something different. So in terms of our, I feel like we're a little bit unique because our customers come to us uh, knowing that we're specific with that industry. But if, say, so a customer was going to Macrofab, you guys are generic. You guys will do anything. So there's a little bit more of uh, impetus on the customer to provide their own information on that. Yeah, this basically happened was um, the example would be a customer came to us without a stack up and we asked for a stack up and the customer uh, was wondering why they had to provide a stack up. Which I thought was very interesting because this is the first time in years this has ever happened to me. And um, and the reason why I, I, I gave with why we define it all the time is um, this is our sales team is we want to make sure when that customer comes back and orders again, they get the same product again. Hmm. Because if you if you ship off a board to uh, get fabricated somewhere, a PCU fabricator, um, and then let's say you ship off that board again to a different fabricator, they might use a different stack up if you don't specify it. Well, what now? Now doesn't Macrofab have a default stack up? Or I know you guys yes. used to. No, no, we had default stack ups. It's just this board did not fall into the stock stack ups because they had a weird combination of, of copper weights for inner and outer layers. Oh, okay. Okay. So th that makes it. So when you first said that the customer is like, why do I have to provide a stack up? I, in my head, I was thinking the same thing. It was like, well, why do they have to, if you guys have a default, but if they've deviated from the standard, then they should provide. One. Yeah. They, they were deviate. Uh, they deviated on the, the copper weights. And so we were said we asked, you know, do you have a, a stack up? And they were asking why they needed one because they're like, well, we just want two ounce copper everywhere. <laughs> they wanted two ounce on internal layers too. Internal layers, yes. Oh wow, okay. Yeah. The, the, you know that's something important to note. Like if you go with thicker copper on your internal layers, uh, that does change the thickness of the copper on the internal layers, mm -hmm. and that changes everything really. So. Um, that's really interesting. I, I'm, I've only once run into a customer who needed um, thicker internal layers. And when I say needed, they just wanted it. They didn't need it. <laughs> they didn't need it? No. <laughs> I've seen um, I've seen like one ounce, half ounce. Um, I think our standards are one ounce, one ounce. Yeah, I believe that's right. I, 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 that was one of the things I did at Macrofab was, was right up... A bit of the standards, and I think it was one one at Macrofab. Yeah, yeah. I took. I actually took your stuff. Probably modified about two years ago, and I made a really fancy looking PDF out of it. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I'm gonna look that up real quick. Make sure I'm not lying about one ounce, one ounce. I think it was one ounce, one ounce, because a lot of places do have one ounce, half ounce. Yeah, it is one ounce, one ounce. Um, yeah. And I think we we offer two ounce and half ounce. It's just we don't have standard stack ups because usually when someone picks those, they generally, I'll say 99% of the time, they have their own stack up they want to use because they're picking it for a reason. It was just this one incident, it, uh, one case, I guess, that a customer asked for asked for a really weird copper weight stack up and didn't provide a stack up. And we're like, well, can you let us know like what how we should build it? And they're like, Why? <laughs> Well, uh, you know, you know, it's actually it's funny because uh, I think this is where Macrofab does things um, or or is changing the game a little bit, and uh, you know, in some ways for the better, maybe in some ways not. I, I'm not exactly sure, but 
traditionally whenever you would get a quote for a pcb you would send out whatever the files were the film files for it right but you'd also send out a drawing that was your fabrication drawing and your fabrication drawing had all the pertinent information so all those buttons that you click when you just order something on on you know whatever web page like green solder mask and white silk screen and things like that those were just written ipc class two right right those were written notes on a fabrication drawing and that's the classic way and almost every fabrication drawing had a had a stack up on it and that's how you mitigated or or got got rid of the problem of if you ever order this again well it's right on the fabrication drawing you're sending it again you always get the same thing so this is what i've noticed on those fabrication drawings from customers and i'm about to call out like a lot of people that (laughs) exist in this world is especially engineering firms i'm about to call out is like half the time you'll look at it and be like why is that a why do they call that out? And so you ask them about it and they go, oh yeah, we just put out on all our drawings. Yeah. So it's like, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's just like, really? Come well, on, then guys. That, that, that means that the, like, I don't want to get too much of a stickler for it, but if something is wrong on a drawing, then you change the drawing. If something is wrong and someone says, don't worry about it, that instantaneously means everything else on the drawing is worthless. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I you will not imagine how many customers I've I've worked with that have that had that problem. So I think the way so in Macfab basically we were saying changing the game. It's more about taking those drawings and stuff and then you basically we're, we're basically making the the problem with the drawing is you have to go read the drawing and to figure out what's going on. Whereas the Macfab platform allows you to set all those options and so you can automate those options. Right, we've said this before. the The MacFab platform is an automation of a fabrication drawing. Yeah, and so that's that's where it, where you're you know translating all this old stuff into a new style format. And so the way I think about it is standardizing how you define a PCB assembly. That's kind of like how I view the MacFab platform um, in terms of from an engineering perspective. Um, but yeah, it's amazing just how many fabrication drawings you go through and like you go why is this like like or sometimes like oh yeah solder mask should be green and then you, they send it in their email oh we want it blue now and i'm like change their drawing then yeah oh, exactly you know it's funny i was having an argument with someone about the term uh living document uh just the other day and and i was i was kind of i was arguing about things in an engineering perspective where i believe that like Take a fabrication for uh, drawing, for example. I believe that constitutes a living drawing or a living document, but a living document um, has is is has snapshots. So, in other words, say you have Rev A of a drawing and something needs to change, you make the changes and you uh, Rev to Rev B. Now, Rev B is alive. Rev B is a different drawing than Rev A. It's not it's not the same drawing like the, and the person I was arguing with was saying like, no, it's the same thing. It's just that Rev A is alive and it's now B. I'm like, no, because they're actually different in my opinion. And I think you get into trouble if you start thinking with, with that other mentality. Like if you make a revision, Rev A is dead and it gets archived and you can go look at it if you need to, in case something is wrong with Rev B, but Rev B is now the main document. So 
like, in my opinion, a living document is one that can be changed, but it is also fixed. You have to go through the process to change it, and as soon as you change it, everything else gets archived, you know? Yeah. The the way the MacFab platform works with that now, because there is, like, revision history and stuff like that, is it works because um, it does do snapshots. That's how, like, revisions and versions and stuff work like that. But it does it by recording the changes made to the original. Okay. So it's kind of like, it's actually a lot like how GitHub would work, where GitHub, you, you when you initially upload all the original files, and then it's only after that it's recording just the changes, for the most part. If, there, if it detects, like, massive changes, it will just do a whole, like, rewrite yeah. of, the, of the file. But it's mainly recording the changes to the files, which ends up being less storage in the end that yeah that 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 makes sense i, I mean i from from a software perspective that makes sense I, I think from a from a hard engineering perspective i would want individual files one is a and one is b yeah the, the gerber files are treated that way um, yeah. because it's doing a diff line by line of a gerber file means nothing to a human <laughs> oh right right yeah exactly um, but like specifications and stuff like that. Oh, the specification got turned from green solder mask to blue solder mask now on this date. And then you know wh who did it. <laughs> Actually, so so I think I think what you're capturing is revision history and the snapshot can be built instantaneously. Whereas yes. with things that are more complex, it's just easier to keep a hard copy of whatever Correct. the thing yeah, is. Yeah. 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 So. Mm. All from PCB stack up. Oh, yeah. Well, not even like going deep into PCB stack up, just like wondering, like defining it. Like, I, I, I'm, a, I'm the kind of person that defines a PCB stack up for like any Joe Schmo two layer board. Um, because I just want to make sure if I order it that way before, I it always comes back that way. Right, right. And I think that's really important for your next topic because it deals with FCC, CE compliance stuff. But that's that's the important thing. Is like Even if you do a Joshmo two-layer board and you get FCC, CE compliance on it and they you build it somewhere else and they change the stack up slightly, that's going to change the performance of your board. Whether or not that it's banking on like impedance control or whatnot, but it can still cause a, you know, it could just be right on the edge and now it's radiating too much. Yeah, just sure. An example. Sure. Yeah, I'm... It's a lot of those things you don't know until you test it, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, you would want, uh, to the best of your capability, you would want to be able to um, um, define and control your stack up. And, you know, that's another thing that, like, in, in like I was saying earlier with Macrofab, like kind of redefining the game on that, um, because of places like Macrofab, a lot of people don't think that they have to define their stack up because they just click, oh, it's, four layer good i'm done right yep. whereas previously you were required to provide a fab drawing like places wouldn't give you a quote without a fab drawing because an email wasn't enough yeah it went it went from that being the requirement and then basically we went into the wild west of pcb assembly or not assembly but pcb fabrication where you could just send your drawings like let's say uh, Osh Park, for example, is you would send your board. <laughs> Osh Park like, was going through my head. Too. <laughs> yeah, it's like you would send your files out, and 
you just get a two-layer or a four-layer board back. Yep. Like, it didn't, you, you didn't care, in quotes, about the stack up because you were getting cheap boards. And so MacFab is trying to, I guess, crawl, crawl back to the let's specify stuff uh, side of it again. Not not to knock Oshpark, because we use Oshpark. That's actually the first couple of years they were our fabricator. I've certainly used my fair share of Oshpark boards. Yeah, I love Oshpark boards. Frankly, I don't know uh, off the top of their head. I don't know what their stack up looks like, but I'm sure they just use a standard, right? Yeah, it's probably just some standard stack up. Yeah, except with purple on it. Now, here's the hard part: is being able to determine when do you need to define a specific, a special stack up. Uh, you know, I mean, ah. obviously, our our definition of like you change copper thickness on the internal layers. Well, now your stack up is different, right? But uh, like, when does it become important for your circuit? That's a lot harder to determine. Yeah, we should, especially since I don't really have a lot of experience uh, with the with, with that kind of stuff. We should probably get someone on the podcast. To talk that about would that. be fun. Yeah, fun in quotes. <laughs> probably <laughs> confusing more than fun, right? Yeah, yeah. All that. Okay, so there. back to FCC CE compliance with Brexit. Dun dun dun. dun, dun, dun. So uh, this is this is a fun one. So. Um, Actually, I keep throwing down that F word around. I don't know what so you're talking fun. about. I, I, <laughs> it's kind of funny. I was, I was joking with my boss today because he sent me, he sent me an email, uh, and it's from UL. UL is is holding a uh, a webinar coming up here soon, and he's like, "Hey, I thought you might enjoy this." And of course, like, I'm I'm that kind of nerd. Where I was like, "Oh yeah, I actually want to see this. This is kind of cool." Uh, so I signed up for the webinar. So so it's all about Brexit. And the CE mark, so Brexit being the UK leaving the European Union, and the CE mark being the mark of the devil from the European <laughs> Union. <laughs> so, so Bre- Brexit is not going to be beholden to all of the uh, requirements of the CE mark. So, as with everything, it's just going to be the Wild West of selling electronics in the UK now. Well, th- th- as with everything Brexit, everyone is like, "What do we do?" Like. If you know anything about Brexit or followed it at all, like it's just, I it, you know, depending on what side of the aisle you're on, you're either like super happy about it, and you're or you're just like this is chaos. Uh, it could be both. The, here's here's the thing about it: <laughs> the 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 UK leaving the CE mark means that they are in the Wild West, uh, so they have a couple of choices: do they maintain the CE mark? Do they require that? Do they require nothing, or do they make their own mark? And I'll let you two uh, kind of guess which one they went with. It's the UK, and they never left the British pound. Um, yeah, yeah, they never, they never went, went to, to the euros. Euro. Right. So they're probably going to revert to whatever they used to have. If they didn't have anything, they were going to make something new. They're making something new. So we got to so- have one standard for everything, and now we're going to have four. No, we're going to have. Four, yeah, we'll have four standards because we're going to have CE, FCC, this UK thing, and we have a Jap. There's a Japanese one too. Oh, there's way more than that. So okay, so so like, I'm talking about the ones that really matter. Well, no, no, get this. Here are marks to keep in mind right now. Okay, FCC, UL, CSA, uh, CE, oh. and uh, and um, now this new one that is called UKCA. Well, which- I don't think. 
you can sell something without a UL mark anywhere. No, and and yeah, yeah. Well, or ETL. Yes, yes. Well, ETL is also kind of another weird one because uh, it's it's sort of like a amalgamation of a bunch of. Yeah, I, I view UL and ETL as kind of like um, safety certification stuff. Um, well, that's yeah, that's that's what they do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm talking about compared to like FCC or CE mark. Well, right. Well, I mean, UL is more concerned with uh, uh, safety uh, in general, and CE is is a little bit more about the uh, in, uh, polluting the environment with electronic crap. And FCC just cares about what you're radiating electronically or uh, electromagnetically. And CSA kind of does a little bit of both. Uh, so so the, the, whole, the whole point is when I was saying, like, these are the marks to keep in mind. Like, if you're developing a product, like, you got to know about all of these things and how they apply to the markets that you might want to get into. Because say you want to, Let's just pretend you wanted to carry something at a big box store in uh, the U.S. Well, you will need the UL mark because most big box stores require the UL mark. You're guaranteed to need the FCC mark. But if you're not selling in uh, the EU, you don't need the CE mark because that doesn't apply on this side of the pond. But if you wanted to expand into the U.K., the CE mark isn't going to be your friend. You're going to need this new U.K. CA mark. But here, let's add some complexity to make it more fun. That doesn't necessarily apply to Northern Ireland, uh, which they are reverting to the CE mark. <laughs> so it's all just a mess now. And, and you know, just to make it easier, like, why don't we just have another body that you have to go to? I do like by. the UKCA's logo. It, yeah. It's got that, like, it's got that, like, cyberpunky font. Just a little bit, yeah, 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 yeah. I like that a lot. It's way better than CE. Well, and and here's the thing: we don't have a lot of time, so if you weren't aware of this, I'm sorry. This this kind of sucks, but uh, so this all goes into effect January first, 2021, is when the UK CA <laughs> mark is required on your product. Uh, three months away, <laughs> but there is a grace period where the CE mark will still okay. Basically, what it is is the UK CA mark. It will be accepted January 1st, 2021. So that's the first date that it, it actually goes into effect. You have one full year where the CE mark still applies uh, to things sold in the UK. Where, uh, and January 1st, 2022 is when the CE mark gets phased out and the UKCA mark, which at the beginning, from from everything that I've read, the UKCA mark seems pretty one-to-one -one with the CE mark. And I think that's done on they just, purpose. They just copy-pasted the document? Well, yeah, I think they did that on purpose to make sure that the trans, um, the, the translation and the, uh, you know, getting into things is, is smoother as opposed to like, here's all these brand new things that you have to do that are all different. I don't all know. your PCBs must have a picture of the queen on it. <laughs> that's coming in a couple years, you know. Uh, but, but I... I have a I have basically www.gov.uk there's a there's an article about like the entire UKCA mark not uk.gov it's gov.uk gov.uk yeah okay so um this this article here if you don't know much about the UKCA mark 
this is a good place to start reading about it. Uh, what the, some of the requirements, some of the unique aspects about it, what they, they, it, it's very much like the overview bullet point, uh, the, the, the front page of what seems good. It seems like it's going to be a massive document, you know, cause it's like re rewriting CE, you know? So mm -hmm. it's going to get pretty nasty. Uh, they don't go into a huge amount of details in this page, at least. Yeah, that's what I was looking at. It was like it's it's anything that would require a UKCA marking. And it's like, what is that? Oh, there's not a list yet. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Everything. It's this is very much Brexit. You know, everything is fresh. Everything is new. Like, how are you going to handle it? So, uh, what what this is meaning is get your stuff in and uh, you start learning about uh, this as much as possible. So. What's nice is if your product can get the CE mark before January 1st of 2021, you can sell it in the UK. There was there's some chat about if you're if you get the CE mark after that, you you have some troubles because they're going to start requiring the UK CA mark. Um, also, after a, I can't remember what the date was, they have it written on that page, which we'll provide the link in the show notes. Uh, the UKCA mark uh, will be required to be a permanent uh, mark. So you either have to mold it into your enclosure somehow or you have to have it uh, in, in an ink that can't be worn off or lasered in or something of that sort. I was about to say, no more stickers. Huh? No stickers. Yep. They, but that's not an immediate thing. I think that's a few years off. I wonder, does silkscreen count? I think it does. Because um, that's permanently in quotes attached to a PCB. Yeah, you might have to prove that it's like an epoxy silkscreen ink or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so something that like alcohol wouldn't wouldn't remove. So one of the things I was reading that's that's important um especially for someone who m maybe hasn't gone through regulatory uh, approvals before. Um they even talk about it in this article is that um documentation is key. So you have to prove documentation behind your manufacturing, where you got your stuff, uh how your thing gets manufactured. Like if they pull out a product, they have to see your manufacturing documentation behind that. So Oh wow. So it's even going farther than CE doesn't even go that far. Yeah, yeah, they so at the same time, it's important to note I should have said this at the beginning. Part, neither Parker and I are experts in this experts at on all. this stuff. No, this is <laughs> on, the first time I've ever heard of this. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So, so don't take our word for any of this. Go and learn about this uh, yourself. Go research it. But yeah, this is sort of the first that I've been learning about it myself. Oh no! Well, are you talking about the Declaration of Conformity? Uh, well, you, the Declaration of Conformity is something that you have to write. Yeah. Yeah, but that's that's similar to CEs. Yes, so but but that. I think in the paragraph above that they talk about your manufacturing documentation. Gotcha. Oh, yeah, I'm reading that. Yep. That now. Yep. Okay. So I don't know the extent of that because I don't know if it's like ISO required. Um, I mean, to yeah, that or degree. is it just like the product shows up at your door and you have to start the documentation because it's 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 talking about you as the manufacturer, right? Not your CM. Oh no, I don't think I don't think it's it's you. I don't yeah. believe it's your CM. That would yeah. be awful. Yeah, you have to track your printed circuit board all the way back to like the mines that the copper and and, and the fiberglass <laughs> came from. Yeah, no, it's not that intense. That's for sure. Actually, that's a good question. What is like? Where does it stop? Yeah, where would it stop? Uh, I it, 
in the beginning, there was the Big Bang. <laughs> That's like the first line of every single document. <laughs> what, what was that? Car, uh, what was that Carl Sagan quote? Like to bake an apple pie, you have to create the universe, or something like that. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's good. So the UKCA mark, um, it does look really cool. It looks cooler than the CE mark, that's for sure. Um, so go go check it out. And uh, I'm looking forward to this webinar. If you go to UL's website somewhere has this webinar on it. We got an invitation through and a, uh, an email, but I'm sure you could probably uh, find that out. It, I, it's scheduled for this month sometime. So I'm looking forward to that to just be like, oh my God, what do we have to know about now? In the in the question and answer section, you should ask the person who's doing the webinar if they want to come on the podcast. Oh, that would be cool. I might have to do that. Yeah, you have to do that. Okay. All right. Um, next topic. Uh, so this was something... Uh, um, Steve and I were talking about before the podcast, and um, so when you ferment beer or wort, you're turning wort into beer, where the fermentation process, um, you have to keep it at the right temperature. And I think we've talked about this a couple of different times, um, but yeah, you need to keep it cool because the yeast have an exothermic reaction as they're eating all the food because they you know they have metabolism right so they're eating all the sugar turning into alcohol and waste is is heat out of that process so you have to keep it cool to keep them from overheating and making off flavors so there's a couple different ways you can do that most home brewers have a uh a ice chest or a freezer that they put them in there they, they put your your fermentation vessel in there and then they you set the temperature with a digital controller Good to go. Works great. That's how Steve and I brew, what, combination 20 years probably of brewing. <laughs> yeah, probably, actually. Yeah, somewhere around there. And, and and actually, one of the one of the aspects of this is not necessarily the absolute temperature. Like, that does matter, but what matters more is maintaining the temperature than, it, than the actual absolute value. Yeah, correct. So there's the, the problem with doing it that way with – basically just having a big chamber that you put your fermentation vessel into is you can only technically do one beer at a time, ferment one beer at a time. Cause if you put another fermentation vessel in there, usually it's not at the same time. So it's like down the road and you might be at a different phase of your fermentation in one vessel versus the other. And they require different temperatures if they're different kinds of beers. So it's, you pretty much have to do like that averaging game of like, well, I need to be kind of in the middle here, and you don't want you know heaters to be fighting each other inside the fr- inside the freezer. And so, um, what what um, professional brewers have is a, what's called a glycol system, and they have a water jacket that goes around their fermentation vessel that cools the entire vessel down um, individually. So each chamber has their own fermentation uh, fermentation cooling jacket uh control right so say you're wanting to uh brew on the same day a lager and an ale the difference between a lager and an ale most of the time lagers are are ferment uh fermented 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 at uh temperature ranges of like 45 to 55 degrees uh fahrenheit and then ales are like 60 to 70 somewhere in that range if you wanted to brew both those on the same day you'd have to be able to maintain that individually yeah um 
And so a couple of years ago, probably about five years ago, there was this big movement in people building DIY glycol chillers for homebrew. And it's kind of a slightly different way. Instead of doing a jacket around the fermentation vessel, they do an immersion cooler, which is basically a big stainless coil that goes into the, the fermentation bucket. Um, and that seems to work just fine. And there's been a couple products that's come out that um, that are like DIY style uh, glycol chillers, basically like they're like mini fridges that you know you have pumps and stuff in it. So Steve and I were looking at these, and the problem with making a DIY one is it looks like a DIY one, like oh, it just yeah. doesn't look good. They look awful. Cause it, yeah, because you take like a, a hundred dollar window AC unit and you <laughs> hack it apart, and then you take the the um, evaporator and like bend it into a cooler. And then you flood the cooler with glycol with a yeah. submersible pump. And it just looks. <laughs> it's and ghetto. Like ex- and then expanding foam, the seal. It, oh, my. It just looks bad. I'm sorry for if anyone's actually made a really good looking one. Let me know because I might want to copy your your design because everything else I find is just like, yeah, that looks that it works. It, apparently, they work great. It's just, man, they just look ugly. And especially after spending you know steve and i spending so much time actually making our rigs like look nice um it's it'd be a shame to have that sitting next to it right (laughs) yeah you don't want this like even though there's there's fun uh, um things about like seeing the guts of whatever project you're working on uh like what we've described in the past with like thunder ohm style electronics you don't want a thunder ohm style uh glycol ch- uh, chiller it just yeah it doesn't instill um confidence in the whole system especially where like uh, most of the time when people like oh like you offer someone a homebrew and they're like no right because yeah. you know there's a there's a stigma about homebrew being you know bad yeah, and then they look at it and they're like, "Oh, so you're pumping weird chemicals through a bunch of tubes on the floor, and then I just yeah. see it like go into this beer and come out, and like, yeah, they're gonna they're gonna look at that and just politely say, well, maybe not even politely, they're just gonna be like, no, no." So, um, so we started looking at at the I'm doing air quotes prosumer models. So for like eight hundred bucks, you can get like a black mini fridge that looks like a it's a glycol cooler mm-hmm. um so we're like well i wonder that's a lot of that's a lot of jeep parts is what i was think was thinking and so we started looking at different ways you could chill like water and so steven found this thing called the chiller daddy <laughs> which might have the worst name of all time oh it's come on it's so great and and it's only it's i say only it's 350 dollars, so it's cheaper now it doesn't have a pump because basically this unit is designed to go under your um, under your sink and cool the water, mm-hmm. which I thought was really weird because like I guess if you don't have a fridge that has cold water coming out of it, but I think every single fridge has that now. I don't know, and I know you can buy a fridge for under three hundred fifty dollars. So, anyways, I thought it was really weird that this product exists, but. Uh, you can take one of those, and then like Stephen has like a twenty-seven dollar pump that you can buy, which I have that pump from for brewing, and it and it 
the day I bought it, I I t- tried it out, or I've I've used it on multiple brews now, and it kind of upset me because I bought this twenty seven dollar pump off of Amazon, and it's as good as my like two hundred and fifty dollar pump. Uh, yeah, it, don't it make has me feel a, bad. it's like it's like a fourth the size, and it has the same flow rate, and it just it's great. Yeah, don't don't make because I have three of those expensive pumps. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, so take one of those. And then basically you just cycled the glycol into the chiller daddy. And then we have to figure out a way to divert the glycol into the immersion chillers and all the vessels. Um, and so I was actually thinking like sprinkler, sprinkler uh, valves. valves. Yeah. Yeah. That would probably work. Did- um, and then could then have that on a, on a uh, temperature, um, uh, temperature control. Yeah, so basically you have X number of fer- uh, fermenters that each one has a coil in the lid that goes down into the actual liquid, and then it, once it reaches a certain temperature, it will just click on a solenoid valve, pump some glycol into it until that temperature is where it Drops needs to be, enough. and then just turn that valve off. Yeah. Yeah. Should work. Yeah. You know, something that was just going through my mind, um, in – in brewing a lot of um a lot of the ingredients that you hang on to uh need to be cold or if you harvest your yeast or anything like that you need to keep them in a cold environment it, maybe there's a much easier way of doing this could you not just buy a really cheapo mini fridge that has a freezer put a tank of glycol in there and then plumb some tubes into the side of it. And then it doubles as a little storage thing for all of your hops and your yeast. And it's got a little tank of glycol up at the top. And you could probably buy that for like a hundred bucks at Walmart or cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. That, no, that's actually a really good idea. And, um, and it would look good too. Yeah. Well, just look like a mini fridge with two hoses coming out, which wouldn't look bad. Well, you could um, you could uh, do some nice fittings on the side of the fridge, and then it would look purposeful. Hell, you yeah. could do it off the back, and then you wouldn't even see it. Yeah, and then the um, yeah, because you yeah you could because you can put the glycol in the freezer section, so it's at like you know thirty degrees exactly. instead of fifty or whatever the fridge decides at. Um, That's a far I cheaper wonder, way of doing this. Yeah, I wonder what. I guess you have to experiment with it, but what your BTU. Um, output would be or input i guess i would say i would I, w- I wonder like like i wonder what the watt like how much joules does yeast output yeah oh so okay i do know i this doesn't answer that but um gosh i was talking with brock can't remember his last name the guy from um St. Arnold's in in Houston. He's the uh, owner of St. Arnold's, and he was talking about home brewing. the The temperature inside the wort, say if you just put your five gallon bucket in a in a fridge and you set it for sixty degrees, it can be upwards of uh, five degrees higher inside the water, inside the actual wort, uh, than the out the external temperature. So whatever. You know that doesn't necessarily answer how many joules of energy it is, but that's a lot of temperature rise for yeah. for just a bunch of bugs eating crap you know yep hmm i wonder if a freezer can well it's to- a a my a chest freezer can easily keep up with like four five gallon buckets so yeah. it's probably fine it'd probably be 
just fine. I bet you you could get away with the whole project for like 200 bucks. Yeah, let's try it. Yeah, because I, I will like, totally do that too. Yeah, this is a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Looks like I'm going Amazon shopping after this podcast. Just buy a little chest <laughs> freezer. Yeah, it's even cheaper. Well, than no, a fridge. Well, a, a fridge with a section. freezer. Because that way you can keep your ingredients yep. in, in the bottom. Yeah. That's, that's a good idea. <laughs> that's way better than the Chiller Daddy. And it also doesn't have the name Chiller Daddy on it. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, that's such a great name. <laughs> the website for that product is a little creepy. Is it? Yeah, it's well. It's an old old website, but it just has like stock photos. But they're probably not stock photos. They're probably pictures of whoever's the person who runs it. Family. Whoever's the daddy. Yeah, whoever. <laughs> whoever's <laughs> the daddy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Last topic for the day. Um, PCB bodges. Mm. So what I noticed on the uh, electronics subreddit is that there's like the war of bodges like people are like one upping their bodges like oh one person used like an 042 instead of an 0805 on this package and then like it's escalating from there like through the roof it's like one picture is like oh i put a dip 16 on the sic 16 package and so my question steven is what is your worst bodge that you ever had to do and what is the most proud bodge you ever had to do? Ooh, okay. Uh, and I guess this is those are two, the two examples I gave are like different packages on different footprints. But this could be like wire bodges or anything like that. Gosh, because I've I've had my fair share of bodges. That's that's for sure. In fact, I remember the first revision of the that that synthesizer we made right before you went to Colorado. Mm-hmm. That was bodge heaven. Oh yeah, or bodge hell. I guess it would be bodge hell. Yeah, I mean it was. It, it had six hundred components, six hundred plus components on it. it had like twelve sub circuits, all untested. So yes. like it needed some bodges. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I but did. Rev two was pretty good. So yeah, yeah, it all worked out. Um, gosh, okay. So like the thing is, it's funny because I'm kind of known for bodging at work, but like. I'm not known for doing shitty bodges at work. I'm known for being like capable of bodging at work. Yeah. I uh, like every one of my prototypes you got to bodge something, you know? Like it's not a prototype. So all your bodges you are proud bodges. I'm I'm pretty happy with with my bodges. Here's one that that was that was fun. Um this was back in the macrofab days. I was making a test jig and I don't remember exactly what happened. Somehow something got screwed up where uh, some layers got connected internally on the boards, and I don't remember how it happened. Um, I took out a drill bit, and I was drilling out vias to disconnect things, and then I ran some bodge wires on top of the board, um, and that worked out. That worked out pretty fine. And I remember being like real careful with the with the via holes because I didn't want it to like have chewed up edges or anything like that. So unless you knew what what you were looking for, you wouldn't know where those. Oh, you know, I think if I remember right. Uh, they were, I'm, I flipped like SDA and SCL on I, uh, I2C lines. Uh, I believe that's what I did. And, and I had to, I had to flip those around. And so I had to drill out, there was luckily two vias right next to my processor. So I, I drilled those out and then flipped them around. <laughs> so w- w- my most proud bodge, I guess, is, um, 
we had uh, a customer built, we built like five prototypes of this board. So everything was fine. And then we built like 250. But some communication, they updated the version in between. And I'm like, we should run a prototype. And they're like, nah, let's run it. Ran it. Um, they they moved one of the parts. Okay. Oh, well, actually, no, they mirrored one of the parts to put on the backside. And this was KiCad. When you do that in KiCad, you have to rerun your polygon pores. Oh, before geez, you export. Yeah. yeah. And so the drills stuff. went straight through all the planes. Ooh. And so, yeah, did that. I basically drilled out all the all those holes. Because they only actually needed the center one for some reason. For some reason, it was like they only needed the center one to actually be connected to something. Mm. And yeah, drilled them all. And the, the center one was like the same. So it didn't actually need to be drilled out. Um, it didn't connect anything besides like a top trace. But yeah, it was like 250 boards times 10 drills. <laughs> Ugh. That sucks. <laughs> but hey, got them all working. And, you know, uh, I, I had a, uh, the, you'll like this one. I had a, had a board that I needed to send. Um, so, so basically what I did was I, I, I had some transistor circuits on the back side of the board where I kind of foolishly just uh, put some transistors in parallel, got the board made, and then I was like, oh, crap. Basically, I made logic where either transistor could make uh, a sub-circuit function when I needed them to be independent, but I put them in parallel like an idiot. And so <laughs> I had to cut some traces to, to make these transistors independent, but now that they're independent, I needed to run a new line from my processor to one of these transistors, which luckily I had plenty of extra GPIO, but my these transistors are halfway up my board, and my processor is at the very top of the board on the other side. And there was not a good way to get around uh, and I needed to bodge a wire all the way through. So I got really, really thin, like 28 gauge wire. And I, I made super nice, like turns and nineties and things. And I snaked it through one of the holes of a, of the, my tag connect programming header and then snaked it all <laughs> the way around. And it was so good that you could still connect a, a tag connect to it and program it. Oh, that's awesome. So that's a, that's, that was a fun bodge. So the one that I think is kind of, interesting bodge wise is way back in the day the uh when i was doing the pin heck uh pinball system so this is before the pinatar um we were on revision three which was like still prototyping and figuring out like how to make a pinball machine work sure and uh so we had a board that would um we bodged into rev four of the board um and so Rev Four was production was a was the production revision for America's Most Haunted Pinball Machine, which is the first pinball machine Spooky Pinball made, and I think we built like a hundred of those. But um, but the first couple were built from bodged Rev Three boards. Oh, nice! Because we wanted to, like actually get some pinball machines in the wild to actually like test stuff. And there is one that still runs because all the other ones got like recalled and not recalled is the wrong word for it. all of them got uh pulled back and like re re like gutted and then put all new stuff into it. Mm -hmm. But one is like at a pizza parlor, like right next door to spooky pinball. And that one is running like a rev three board still. 
and it's still running like the because the, the thing is we can't upgrade the code either because like we did do some like pin changes so the code's not compatible between rev 4 and rev 3 <laughs> so it's still running like the original old code but it's still running today so it's that's got been like seven years ago now wow six years ago six years ago that's awesome and it's running bodges like because we would uh, we ran all the bodges and like hot glued them down the wires down so they wouldn't vibrate or anything and man that thing's still apparently it's like still trucking today wow so that's the longest running bodge I've ever had, I guess. <laughs> I don't think I have any bodges in the wild. All of my bodges are prototypes. Yeah, most of the time they're on your desk or whatever, but like right. this one's actually I think there's a couple the Rev three bodges are like so Spooky Pinball's got like a glass cabinet mm. they put their history in. Um and so they got all those boards in there, except there's still that one in the wild that's and it and they just don't want to change it. Cause that was like the first that was the first machine they ever delivered in quotes nice too so it's like they put it in there just so people could play it test it out very cool i wonder how old that code is like how different that code is from the would you even like, be able I, to tell i think yes um i know there's been like i think ben did like 30 or 40 revisions of code to that game. <laughs> <laughs> and like, even when that Rev 3 was out, like, even the artwork is different on that game. So it's it's way different. Playfield, I think, is pretty close to, to production, but like, all the artwork on the outside and stuff is way different. Like, I think we were, like, it's on the outside of the cabinet is like photoshopped people and stuff. It's not like drawn or anything. It's really, it's interesting. I guess we'll wrap up. So, before we leave, we want to see pictures of your bodges in the Slack channel. Oh, yeah. yeah. Give us your worst. Or best. I think I have some um, some bodges all, all, uh, that I have. I mean, not think. I've got bodges all around me right now. <laughs> but, but I think I have some fun bodges that um, I'll take some pictures and, and show you guys. I, I actually, I, I okay, got a fun bodge. Uh, so I designed a uh, switch mode power supply the other day that functions properly. Like there's nothing wrong with it. Um, and it's just a switch mode that takes 12 volts and drops it to 3.3 to power my digital stuff. But there is one setting on one sub circuit at a different part of the board that if you put it into that setting, then the switch mode supply messes with its operation and it oscillates in a weird clipping portion of that circuit. The circuit gets flat and in that flat section, it oscillates with the switch mode power supply. So I just took the inductor on my switch, that switch mode power supply. And I kind of stood it up and soldered another one in, in series. And I just doubled the inductance value all gone. It just went away. So that's, <laughs> I just did a bodge the other day and I had, uh, I had a customer, um, or a client, I should say, uh, he he has some of these boards on his end too, and he tried that. Also, it works on all of his boards. So, uh, just needed a slightly higher inductance value to get the duty cycle peaks down, such that it didn't interfere with this. And and it's purely a board layout situation that the current spikes that were due to the lower value of inductance screwed up another part of the circuit. So, there's a nice fun little bodge. How long did that take to figure out? Like ten minutes. Oh, did you see what the frequency of the ripple was? And that was what your 
switching frequency was? Actually, what I did was I had the board on and I set it up in that situation where the ripple was there. And then I just started touching my finger all around the switch mode supply and I could control the frequency of <laughs> oscillation. <laughs> so it was like, okay, well, it pretty much has to be that. So, so how did you figure out that you needed more inductance? Um, th- th- this particular switch mode controller the lower value of inductance is more suitable for higher loads. And this is a really, really light load. So basically what's happening is the duty cycle is working very, very lightly. It, basically it, it turns on and it just slams peaks. a huge peak into... Uh, so on the uh, the return current path uh, in the ground plane is, is lifting this other circuit, uh, every one of those pulses. So by in, uh, increasing the inductance, the duty cycle gets larger. So the current pulses are smaller and this other circuit doesn't get affected by that yeah and it's funny because all the other the entire rest of the other circuit it's dead quiet has like this smps doesn't do anything to anything else on this circuit uh and it's a big six layer board and stuff i wouldn't want to reroute things when i can just change the value of the inductance and i I was i was a little low on my inductance anyway i could stand to go a little bit higher so and that's just going to drop your efficiency a tad but not Actually, it'll probably increase my efficiency a tad because I was I was on the very low side oh, very of low the duty end. cycle, and uh, this this should bring it closer to fifty percent, which is nicer with this particular controller. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. It's a very light load on something that's like it's designed to hold to carry three amps of load, and I have it doing like forty milliamps. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would do it. Yeah. Okay, let's wrap this up yep. now. So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. Take it easy. Later, everyone.